morning. We are continuing reading uh, this morning from Matthew chapter 5, and we will be looking at verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. After two weeks of having to preach on adultery and divorce, talking about lying is a relief. (laughs) Not that it's to be taken lightly. Um, If you've been following along with us, you know that Jesus introduced his famous Sermon on the Mount by saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was saying that unless our own attempt at religion is greater than the world's best attempts at religion, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven and experience the forgiveness and love and joy of God uh, for all eternity. And then he offers six examples of this greater righteousness that only he can provide. And the fourth example of this greater righteousness that he's talking about in the sermon, the fourth example has everything to do with the integrity of our words. So we don't think a lot about oaths and vows. It's not a big deal in our culture. The only time we really think about taking oaths and taking vows is when we're in a courtroom. Or, or when, when we're at a wedding ceremony. Or maybe we watch somebody take an oath of office. Uh, but, but other than that, uh, swearing things don't really take up a big amount of space in our lives. But for, the ancient peop- for ancient people, it was not that way. They virtually lived by oaths. Ancient cultures believed in the power of a person's words. So for example, if you're an ancient Israelite, you would say things like, As the Lord lives, I will not leave you. That's what Elisha said to Elijah. Um, Or, I mean, if you look at that, you look at King David and Solomon and Ruth. uh, They talk this way. As surely as the Lord lives. May the Lord judge between you and I if I don't do the thing I said I was going to do. This is the full talk. They believed in the power of words, as one scholar says, to effect reality. They took words seriously. Or more recently, more recently, there's Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. Now think about him. He is trying to to be patient for the man in black to come up the cliff so that he can fight and kill the man in black. But he's such a man of honor that he is patiently waiting for the man in black to get up, to get up the cliff. And and, and he's saying, what can I do to convince you that that if, if I help you, I won't let you fall? He's so eager to duel the man in black that he's willing to help the man get up the cliff so that they can duel and fight. Right? And he says, can, can I give you my word as a Spaniard? Right? And the man in black says, no, I, I've known too many Spaniards. 
that won't be any good, right? So he's, he's, an ego is desperately trying to figure out how can I persuade him that I am a man of honor, that I am a man who keeps my word and I'm gonna help him get to the top. So, so he says, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And he proves to be a man of his word. You know, human beings have always looked for ways to increase the value of their own words. And human beings have always looked for ways to lessen the value of their own words. We say things, we make promises, we forge commitments, we even sign contracts that, that we naively fail to appreciate when we're in the process of making those promises. We even say things and make promises and forge commitments that we really don't believe in at the time. We even make promises that we don't intend to keep at all. And we even embed into our very contracts technicalities, right, that allow us to cancel those very commitments. But Jesus here is gonna show us that our promises are more than words. Our promises reflect the condition of our hearts. And that's really what God's concerned about. And I think you're going to see today that those who love God in their hearts are going to honor Him with their words. Today I want to talk to you about integrity. The integrity of what we say backed up by what we do. And I want to talk about the integrity of God's name I want to talk about the integrity of God's people. So listen up if you're a Christian. If you're not, I still think this is important to hear. And I want to talk to you about the integrity of God's son. So the integrity of God's name, and by necessity, the integrity of God's people who are called by his name to represent him. And finally, the necessity for God's people to live by the integrity of Jesus Christ and him alone. So uh, the integrity of God's name, and when I say God's name, uh, also think of it as God's reputation, right? Because you understand, like, your name is your reputation. What, what's attached to your name in public is attached to you. Your name is your reputation. So the integrity of God's name and of his reputation is sacred, as you look in the scriptures. And, and in ancient Israel, if you're an ancient Israelite, keeping your word was not just about your own honor. Keeping your word was about God's honor. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, we hear Moses say, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Wow, so the Israelites were commanded to swear by God's name. Why do you think that is? Think about it. If you're going to say something in God's name, you had better mean it. If you're using the divine name, if you're using the name that is above all names in the universe, the only true source of authority and faithfulness, if you're going to use that name, then you had better mean what you're about to say. And so in a sense, by taking oaths and vows in the name of God, it's, it curbs the effects of sin in society. Actually, the theologian John Frame, uh, he put it this way. He said, oaths help to maintain stability in a fallen world. 
The oath has always been a vital aspect of civil law. And when the oath is despised, meaning when we don't take it seriously, the result is government corruption, civil injustice, and cultural chaos. And in a sense, this is what God was doing in ancient Israel when he said, you swear by my name, because I want you to take your oath seriously. And I, and I want the accountability for what you say to mean something to you and to the people you make commitments to. Now, let me just define a couple of terms because oath and vow are very similar. Jesus is almost using them interchangeably in this passage. But to be technical, an oath is an assertion that what you're saying is true. Right? I, I, I swear, I, I'm taking an oath that everything I'm about to say is, is absolutely true or let me be boiled in my own pudding. Okay? A vow is a promise that you make that you're going to do something. So an oath is an assertion that what you're saying is true. A vow is a promise that you intend to keep, something you promise to do. Okay, so, so when we do this, when we swear in God's name, first of all, we're honoring him as the ultimate and only source of truth in the universe. And, and just as importantly, we are helping guard our society, our culture, our very lives against the effects of unchecked sin and depravity. So Jesus' concern was this, that, that God's very reputation was being maligned by a system of oath-taking that the religious leaders of his day and their predecessors had concocted. So let's look at what he actually said. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Remember, that's that's code for a formula. Now, he's, he's not simply quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a religious interpretation of the Old Testament that was common at the time. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, what's he quoting there? It's, it seems that Jesus is, he's quoting an expression that, that really kind of sums up several Old Testament passages in the law, in the Torah, uh, that all go back to the third commandment. You know what the third commandment is? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because if you do, God will not hold you guiltless for doing that. And so many case laws came out of that original third commandment. For, for instance, Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Or um, Numbers chapter 30 verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And there are others that resemble what Jesus is saying here. So you may be wondering, well, what's the problem, Jesus? I mean, you're, it, it just sounds like the Old Testament, sounds like good old-fashioned scripture. Why are we having a problem with this? Okay, so this is an example of how we need to use other parts of the Bible to interpret this part of the Bible for us. It's an important rule in interpreting scripture. Let's go to another place and see if it sheds light on what Jesus is saying here. And sure enough, if you keep reading in Matthew's gospel, you get to Matthew chapter 23, you find something precious. Uh, he's, he's giving this 
diatribe against the scribes and Pharisees with all of these, uh, these statements that begin with, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he gets to a point about vows and oaths. He says, woe to you who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. He responds to this way of thinking and this practice of, 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 of oath-taking by saying, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Here's what was happening. In the system that they, that they had created, they were taking God's name out of the equation. And by doing that, by taking God's name out of a pledge, out of a promise, out of an oath or a vow, they essentially lighten the weight of the promise. And if you wanted to make a promise you had no intention of keeping, or if you wanted a way out by a technicality of what you had committed to, well, you wouldn't use the name of God. You would use the temple or the altar or your own head. Craig Blumberg is a New Testament scholar who wrote this. Uh, Many Jews viewed swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, or by one's head as less binding than swearing by God. And, and there's a word for the system. It was called casuistry. And casuistry is basically a cleverly developed moral system with a hierarchy of oaths and vows. There are higher vows, there are lower vows. There are vows that are more binding, there are vows that are less binding. And, and, and essentially, um, by developing all of these technicalities, they had invited loopholes into their obedience of the law of God. All the, technicality, all the technicalities in this hierarchy created loopholes so that they didn't have to honor the law of God if they really didn't want to. I think one of the best examples in our contemporary culture of casuistry, uh, you have to go back several decades to uh, Charles Scholes and the, that relationship between Charlie Brown and Lucy. Uh, and, and if you're familiar with any of the, the, the Charlie Brown cartoons or comics, you, you, you know that Lucy demands total control over Charlie Brown. And, and she has this thing where she asks him to kick a football but she has no intention of letting him kick it. So he gets all excited and he runs up to this thing to kick it as hard as he can. And she always pulls the football away and he goes flying in the air and lands flat on his back, humiliated, right? And so uh, there's, there's, there's this one comic where she says, hey, Charlie Brown, you wanna kick the football? And he's like, what? Are you, you must think I'm stupid. I am not gonna, don't even bother anymore. And, and, and what she does this time is she produces her own signed document. She gives him this document, she said, look, I see the document says that I promised to let you kick the football. And, he, and, he, and Charlie Brown goes, wow, a signed document. I'm really gonna kick that football this time. So sure enough, he runs back and he sprints to the football and what does she do? She pulls it away again and he goes flying up in the air, lands on his back in pain, humiliated. So how does Lucy get out of that? She says, peculiar thing about this document. It was never notarized. That is exactly the system that Jesus is talking about here. People hide behind the letter of the law 
in order to evade and neglect the spirit of the law. Now, was Jesus outlawing all oaths and vows and pledges and contracts? Because some Christians over the centuries have made that assumption. They, they interpret this passage literalistically and they, devi- they devise religious systems and entire ways of living uh, that, that, that uh, dictate they must avoid all such types of pledges and commitments. Uh, that is not what Jesus is saying at all. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying it would be better not to swear at all than submit to such an erroneous system of oath-taking. If this is the system, then it would be better not to use the system at all. Just say yes and say no and mean what you say and stop making all these crazy, crazy pledges uh, with all these technicalities and loopholes. Actually, and I don't have time to do it today, but I could show you through the Gospel of Matthew and then into the New Testament letters that Jesus took oaths, that the Apostle Paul and other apostles took legitimate oaths. If you read the book of Acts and if you look at some of the letters in the New Testament, uh, the Bible does, the New Testament doesn't outlaw lawful oaths and vows. Rather, Jesus' concern here is that God's people speak and act with integrity that the words they speak and the subsequent actions are consistent, that we speak and we act in a manner that is worthy of the name of God. No loopholes. Christians should simply do what they say they intend to do or don't say it at all. Now, how do we do this, right? Think about it. Think about yourself. Think about yourself. We all know that we've never kept all of our promises, not even close. If you think you've kept most of your promises, if you give me enough time to meet everybody in your life, I will find people who vehemently disagree with you. How do we we honor our word consistently? For God's people to have integrity, because that's what this is about, If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a child of God, you need integrity because you you represent God on this earth. In order to have integrity, in order for God's people to be people of integrity, it requires that we possess moral simplicity. I don't mean being morally simplistic. I mean that we possess, as Christ's disciples, moral simplicity. Here's what I mean by that. So if you remember from the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we talked about what it means to be pure in heart. These are people who are not internally conflicted about what they want in life. The pure in heart are people who are not disingenuous. They are consistent. What you hear them say is what they mean and what they intend to do. You're not wondering, with someone who is pure in heart, you're not wondering what they're about. They tell you, they show you what they're about. They have one desire in life, and it's to honor their creator. It's to serve their Lord. And that dictates everything that they do and everything that they say and promise. So when Jesus says in verse 37, to sum everything up, when he says, let what you say be simply yes or no, or as some of your translations say it, just let your yes be yes, that's it. Or just let your no be no. That's moral simplicity. 
Once again, uh, Craig Bloomberg, the New Testament scholar, writes, Jesus' followers should be people whose words are so characterized by integrity that others need no formal assurance of their truthfulness in order to trust them. Look, we, our society lives by contracts and agreements, fine. But can you live your life as a follower of Jesus in such a way that people value your word and don't need extra elaborate proof that you mean what you say? Or do they question your intentions when you open your mouth? Moral simplicity is, is that you have earned a trustworthy reputation because your actions have consistently backed up your words. And, and this honors God as our creator and our heavenly father because God is true and God is faithful and we reflect that truth and faithfulness. But just as importantly, moral simplicity is a great way of loving our neighbors in this world, especially those who do not know Jesus. And it's really important right now because we live in a society where people doubt truth and where words lack meaning. You know, in 2016, Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Look, we all know this. Our, our politicians and the media uh, that analyzes and scrutinizes our politicians, uh, the, these folks, they say things and they present things as truth before they have prov pro provided corroborating evidence. You can spin a story, right? You, you can kind of own the public opinion by making a statement as though it were true before you have facts. And by then it may be too late to correct them if you even want to. Our public leaders are known to support a thing and then later oppose the very same thing, depending upon what is most expedient at the time. We know that, that many leaders do this. We ourselves and many others post things, tweet things, uh, waging wars, with our words on social media and in the blogosphere. I mean, if, if you, in my vocation, pastors lie all over the place and say the word, attack one another with words through the blogosphere. Typing things. Have you ever noticed people on social media and in blogs typing things about people that they would never say to those same people in person? Right? It's, it's, and then you begin to wonder, who is the real person? Is the real person the one I'm reading in the post or in the tweet, or is the real person the one that's actually before me? What is the, who is the real person? The, the media personality and how they present themselves and what they say, or the person that I'm looking at face to face, which is it? The Apostle Paul would say, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. What's he saying there? He's saying, as sure as God is faithful, we have been faithful to you and we've been consistent with you. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to wonder if it's yes or no. God's been faithful and we have been faithful to you. And if you're a Christian, this can be your motto. This can be your practice. No inconsistency in your life. You can ask God for a pure heart. Have you ever asked God for a pure heart if you follow Jesus? 
The way David put it in Psalm 51 after he had sinned was he said to God, give me an undivided heart. The same thing, a true heart, a single-minded heart, a pure heart. You can ask God for that type of a heart so that your words will actually reflect, get this, his intentions. Not even your own intentions, because we jump to that. Let, let my words reflect my intentions. Hold on. Wait a minute. It's deeper than that. Let my words reflect your intentions, oh God. And you know, that saves us from a lot of heartache of broken promises or misguided commitments. If our words reflect his intentions. If you seek God's righteousness then you're going to want to do his will. And if you want to do God's will, then your yeses are going to glorify him. And your noes are going to glorify him also. If that's your desire, then now you have all the motivation you need. You have all the wisdom you need. You have the moral foundation you need to say yes to something and to say no to other things. So God's will the desire to please him, the desire to reflect his truth and goodness and beauty and love and justice, that becomes the motivation for every promise you make and for every promise you choose not to make in good judgment. God is interested in more than words. He is interested in the intentions of our hearts. Now, why do we find it necessary to be less than honest? Rachel did a really good job with the kids earlier in talking about what a fib is and what a half-truth is. You know, you, you can kind of present half the picture and still uh, be guilty of sin uh, by trying to misrepresent the truth. Uh, really quick, just a few very brief answers. Why do, you, why, why do you think we find it necessary to be less than honest? We want to be liked. And another way of saying we want to be liked is we're afraid of people. We want them to like us. We think their opinion is really important. Great. What else? Why do we find it necessary to tell less than the truth? Save our reputation. Save our reputation. Yeah, our reputation's a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you may have worked hard for your reputation, and one little mistake can ruin your reputation, right? So you may want to protect your reputation by not telling the truth. Great. Yeah. We want to get our own way. Manipulation. I, I see so much of manipulation in Lucy and Charlie Brown. She just, it's just a football, Lucy. What's going on there? She, she wants to be in control. Yeah, we want our own way. Any others? Why, why do we feel it's necessary to be less than truthful all the time? Wow, the total, total truth has consequences. We don't want to deal with the consequences. Yeah, Daniel. Similar to Dan, to avoid, avoid consequences. Yeah, maybe a couple more, yeah. Forwarding our own narrative. Oh, forwarding our own narrative. Wow, like so if you control the story, you get a big, absolutely. You control the story, you get the outcome. Yeah, yeah. And it's similar to want to be in control, wanting to manipulate the world and the people around us. Yeah. Wow, excellent. Yeah, good, good thoughts. Yeah, um, why do we find it necessary to be less than honest? Uh, do you remember what Adam said to God when God, they had, Adam and Eve had sinned and they were hiding with the fig leaves and God comes looking for them. Where are you? Such a piercing question, where are you? And do you remember what Adam said, why they were hiding? 
Remember what he told God? I was afraid. Yes, he was ashamed. That's why they had the fig tree lingerie. But they were hiding because he was afraid. See, I think that fear, everything you said is true, but I think that fear is behind all of our dishonesty and inconsistency. When we are afraid of people, or think about this, when we are afraid of failure, we will speak untruthfully to cover ourselves in any arena of life. And this really sheds light on why Jesus says in verse 36, and do not take an oath by your own head because you can't make one hair white or black. What's the point there? He's saying such arrogance to think that you can assure yourself some kind of responsibility and authenticity for what you're saying and what's going to happen. You can't even guarantee what's going to happen to yourself. You can't even guarantee you're going to be here tomorrow. You have no control over your own life. Why are you making promises? Why are you trying to tell people that you have a great plan and a great idea and that you didn't do it or you didn't say it? You have no control. And I think there's a connection between fear and control that causes us to be dishonest or less than truthful. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Cry of the Soul, say all of us fear what we cannot control. And they write that fear is provoked when the threat of danger, it can be physical danger or it can be relational danger, right? So it, it, it could be more than just I'm, I'm afraid for my safety. It could be I'm, I'm afraid for my reputation. I'm afraid for this relationship. I'm, refra- I'm afraid for how others see me. They say fear is provoked when the threat of danger exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. And Jesus is saying, you can't make your hair white or black. Whatever you most deeply cherish, you have no control over. And it is that fear of losing that control that is driving you to be dishonest, that is driving you to be less than truthful, less than consistent, less than people of our word. But not only do we fear honesty, we're hypocritical when others are dishonest. And this really levels the playing field. If any of you have been proud of yourselves today and thinking about other people as we've been listening to this sermon, now I want you to think about yourself. Stop thinking about that guy or that girl or that person Let's think about ourselves right now. I've had to do it for seven days. I'm asking you to do it for 10 minutes. Now start thinking about yourself. Not only do we fear honesty, we are hypocrites because we judge dishonesty in other people. In our post-truth society, we act like words mean very little until people let us down. And then words mean a whole lot, don't they? We hypocritically dismiss our own lies. How many times have you tried to justify yourself when somebody accused you or criticized you? How many times have you tried to defend yourself? Even in your mind, how many times have you tried to justify yourself when other people said things or thought things less of you? We demand 
We demand that people stay true to their words. We demand it of our politicians and our leaders. We demand it of our spouses. We demand it of our bosses. We demand it of our employees. We demand that people live up to their word and then we punish them. We punish them when they don't live up to their word. But when the, t- when the tables are turned on us, what do we do? We deflect. We make excuses. We don't own up. It's hypocritical to dismiss your own lies and judge others for theirs. And the Bible levels the playing field when James chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We each have to, you have to own up to your lack of integrity. You have to own up to your lack of integrity. Even if the integrity is in the privacy of your own soul, God knows it. You have to own up to it. And in response, you have to throw yourself on the mercy of God and cling to the integrity of God's son. A lifetime of outward and inward dishonesty stains your record permanently. You can't do anything to wash it off. You can't do anything to scrape that tarnish off of your record. It's like wearing, wearing robes that are permanently stained, right? The Old Testament tells us, puts it, puts it that way. We all lack integrity outwardly and inwardly, and there's nothing, there's nothing we can do about that. The song by Nine Inch Nails has a haunting Uh, a haunting phrase. This is hurt by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, These words, listen to them. I wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair. Filled with broken thoughts I cannot repair. The truth is, nobody should trust anybody. If we're really going to be honest, nobody should trust anyone. What did Billy Joel say decades ago? Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. The reality is you shouldn't trust a soul and nobody should trust you. There is a valid reason why why we're afraid of honesty. There's a valid reason why we're, we're afraid of exposure. We're afraid of scrutiny because we don't want to submit ourselves to the judgment of other liars who are as unforgiving as we are in our hearts. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who John in his gospel calls the Word, the Word that was with God in the beginning, the Word the word that was God, the Word that is God, God's self-expression. Jesus, the Son of God, came and he said Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Remember, people were swearing by the temple and swearing by heaven and swearing by the gold on the altar. He said, all of this stuff's going to pass away, but I'm not going to. My words are eternal. My words are more sure than the foundations of the universe. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He's the only thing we can latch onto in the universe for absolute assurance of consistency. 
and integrity. Nothing but the word of God. Nothing but the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And not only is Jesus the embodiment of truth, you may not have expected this today, but Jesus is the embodiment of fear. The only healthy fear that exists. What did God say? You, you, shall, you shall fear me. You shall serve me. You shall swear by my name only. Fear is a good thing. Fear is a healthy thing when God is the object of our fear and nobody else, right? Jesus said, don't be afraid of people who can cast you into prison. Don't be afraid of people who can judge you for what you've done. Don't, don't, don't fear people who can judge you for going back on your words and breaking your promises. Fear the one who can throw you into hell. There's only one kind of healthy fear. It's the fear of the Lord, which Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. You want to get somewhere in this world? Fear the Lord. It has to start there. That's healthy fear. And Jesus feared his father. Not like the big boogeyman, like the one who deserves our ultimate adoration and attention and respect and honor. He said, doing the will of my father in heaven is like food for me. It keeps me going. It's what I want. It's what I desire most. And his great, he was so afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was executed. He, he was so afraid that he physiologically sweat blood. Why? Because he was afraid of being tortured? No. Scholars are in almost total agreement that Jesus' fear was being separated from the presence of his heavenly Father. Just read the great prayer in John 17 while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was betrayed. His greatest fear was losing the joy, the love, the fellowship, the glory that he had always known from the beginning with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was afraid of being separated from his Father. He loved him so much. He feared him so much as the perfect human being. The eternal word of God then, the next day on a cross, exchanged his integrity for your broken promises for my record of external and internal deceit and half-truths and broken promises sitting there on my liar's chair with my crown of thorns. Why would he do it? For love. This is, this is what changes everything. That Jesus did this for you because he loved you because he loved his God, because he feared and loved his heavenly father, Jesus drove himself to the cross. First John 4 puts it this way. There is no fear in love. Look, if we're gonna become people of integrity and honesty, we have to deal with our fear, our fear, fear of people and our fear of failure. And if we're gonna deal with our fear in a healthy way, we have got to be driven to love. Nothing else will cure us of it, only love. We have to go to love. And John says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear, here it is, fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then here it is, we love because he first loved us. The antidote to dishonesty and to inconsistency is a fear of God that is motivated by his love. Knowing that you are loved like that, that a man would die for you, that a man would take his spotless record and give it up and take your crummy, dirty record to a cross for you, 
so that he could be with you forever. When that love changes you, that's what drives out your fear of people, your fear of failure, your fear of being exposed. That's what drives it out. And the love of God is what motivates you to be a person of integrity. Fear won't because it's just about an obligation and, and, and not wanting to be punished. But love drives you. Love drives you to be a person of integrity, to be like Jesus who died for you. As you desire to please him who died for you, now your yeses are for him. Your noes are for him. They're not for you anymore. They're not for your reputation. They're not for people to like you and think you're all that. They're not for you to hide yourself anymore. Your yeses are for Jesus. Your noes are for Jesus. And that's what guides you to be a person of integrity whose words are followed up by actions that are consistent. Those who love Jesus in their hearts, oh, oh, I've got to, I've got, I've got to share this with you. Listen to this. As you become a person of integrity, you can echo the words of Paul, which I only gave you in part earlier. Paul said, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. What's the foundation of that? He goes on to say, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. We become people of integrity when the love of Christ compels us to say yes for him and no for him. Right? That helps us, that helps us refrain from making stupid, naive commitments. That helps us refrain from making false commitments we never intend to keep. And that guards us from feeling shame and guilt when because of human sin, when because of our imperfections, when because we're not perfect, we fail. The love of Christ. So those who love him in their hearts will honor him with their words. God is truth, right? God is truth. And his words are true. And he calls his people to truth. He calls us to lives of honesty and consistency as his children. And in this world as his ambassadors. So give up your false integrity. Throw yourself, throw yourself on the integrity of Jesus Christ. You're not perfect. You don't think perfectly. Give it up now. Stop playing the charade. Throw yourself on the mercy and the integrity of Jesus. When we say we're in Christ, when we say we're a Christian, we're saying that Jesus has something that we cannot work up on ourselves. And today I want you to know, you have no integrity in and of yourself. Neither do I. We desperately need the integrity of Jesus Christ. And from there, from there, knowing that he loves us, we are now motivated to be people of, not only people of the word, but people who honor our words because we're honoring his word, because we're honoring him who loved us and died for us. So let his love drive out the fear, the fear of rejection, the fear of imperfection, the fear of failure, and become a person of truth. As your words begin to reflect his intentions for your life, his intentions. Let's pray. Oh God, we 
we confess to you the gravity of our condition, we know that we are liars. Um, we know that if we have not lied openly recently, we've lied in our hearts. Uh, Father, we confess that some of the best work we do is the product of manipulation to control the people and the circumstances around us. Father, we confess that we are afraid. We are often driven by fear. We are often driven by a failure, a fear of failure. We are often driven by a fear of people, and we very infrequently are driven by a love for you and a fear of you. Lord, help us as your church be a people of integrity whose words are corroborated by our, our actions. Father, I pray that as Christians, as a body, and as individuals and as families, we would be known in this world as people of integrity. Even if people disagree with us, even if it throws us into prison, even if people unlike us on social media, even if people will not be friends with us anymore, help us to be people whose words and actions are consistent, but, but, but consistent with your agenda, consistent with your righteousness and with the principles and agenda of your eternal kingdom. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the man of truth who died to back up his own words and commitments. May we live in his righteousness. May we live in his integrity, driven and motivated by his love. Amen.